0: Let's go to Yahweh in prayer. Father Yahweh, we come before you. We thank you for the blessings of this day. We thank you for the Sabbath. We thank you for those gathered. We thank you for those watching and able to watch online, the technology and and, uh, the willing heart to watch and to participate in your Sabbath, Father. And we give you all praise. We pray that you'd be with those here. We pray that you'd be with those abroad, be with your people throughout this world. We also pray that You would always be with this ministry, that you would guide this ministry, and that we would always walk according to your ways, according to your ways is what we desire, Yahweh. And we thank you, and we give you all praise in the name of Yahshua the Messiah. Hallelujah. Y'all may be seated. It is a uh, blessing to see everybody here today, and I'd like to extend a a welcome and an invite and greetings to... uh, our visitors and those online, it's amazing, you know, the people that watch. I mean, I think I heard, what, Jamaica today and, and uh, South Africa, maybe, I think I heard, and, and uh, of course, Canada. So, and, you know, many, many places throughout the state. So it really is a blessing. I'd like to um, extend a warm welcome to uh, those online. Where today, I want to talk about the Prophetic feasts Fulfilled prophetic feast fulfilled. Now, before we do that, I want to give a real quick report on the Abib. I know a lot of people are asking where we are at with the Abib. We think it's going to be uh, fine, and uh, the clicker's not working here for me. So, not sure why. Maybe you can advance. Okay. So, okay. Now it works. So, I wanted to share just a few slides with you. Uh, This is uh, two examples of wild barley and I want to make the notation there: wild barley in the land of Israel and uh, I think this is from the south uh, I want to give uh, kudos to uh, Brian and Linda Convert they've uh, been faithfully going to the land of Israel for 20 years into looking for the barley they know how to do it they're reliable they're uh, dependable sources so uh, with COVID this year not too many witnesses normally normally we like to have three or four witnesses if possible And uh, they do have some folks in Israel as well looking for this. But as far as folks coming from going uh, uh, from the this country, United States to uh, Israel, we can't do it right now with COVID. So but Brian is very good with documenting his results. So these are two pictures, as you can see, uh, they are already forming uh, heads. So this was a really great picture. This was uh, taken yesterday. Oh, by the way, those two pictures that were taken uh, shown, those were taken two days ago. Uh, this was taken yesterday in Israel, and this is a domestic field. So this is not wild. Wild barley does not grow in this abundance. In fact, wild barley, for those who may not know, is kind of seen as a uh, as a weed uh, in Israel. Uh, the farmers like to eradicate it, and the uh, the uh, goats, I guess, or the sheep, whatever they like to, to to mow it down. So it's kind of hard to find sometimes. But this this is a domestic field and uh, of uh, barley, and as you can see is maturing very nicely. So from all indication, the barley will be ready by the March new moon. So here in just a a few weeks, uh, we should be calling Abib. Now saying that, we will be monitoring the barley and we will be looking and making sure we will give a final uh, confirmation before the new moon. But from all indication, there should be no issues this year with the Abib barley. I want to Also, take a few minutes and explain why we use the Abib barley. We get that question. I'm not going to dwell on this today, but I do want to speak to it for just a few minutes. You know, the main reason we use Abib or barleys is found within the name Abib. And, you know, that's the simplest way really of looking at this. And Abib, of course, for those who know, this is a name of the first month. And I want to share some definitions with you. So, uh, three slides here. One is uh, Strong's, and that's something we're all familiar with, Strong's Concordance. So Abib, it defines Abib in the following, from an unused root, meaning to be tender, that uh, green, uh, that is a young ear of grain. So here we see how Strong's defines Abib, it's a young ear of grain. Now, Brown Driver Briggs, Hebrew lexicon, it says, month of ear forming of green of crop, the growing green Abib, the month of the Exodus, and the Passover. So again, greening of crop, and we know the crop is barley. So the theological word book of the Old Testament, this really is probably the best definition I feel that I've seen through scholarship. It says, barley that is already ripe, but still soft, the grains of which are eaten either rubbed or roasted. And that's a very important definition because it's very specific as to what Abib is. And basically this is referring to what's called the soft dough stage of the barley, where you can roast it and then produce flour. So that's the soft dough stage. So barley must be in the soft dough stage to be considered abib barley, if you will. So the Wilson's Old Testament word studies, it defines the name of the month. Abib as the name of the month, so-called, because corn. Corn, as we think of it, does not exist in the Middle East. It may now, but it was not native to the Middle East. Grain is. Barley is, oats, um, other grains So I inserted grain there, because corn is an old English word for grain, was then forming in the ear a few weeks before the harvest, falling somewhere about March or April, afterwards called Nisan, the first month of the Hebrew year. Now, this is the last source I want to look at, and this is really stating how scholarship believes the year was determined. So this is from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, it says, Abib is not properly the name of the month, but part of a descriptive phrase, the, young, the month of young years of grain. And that's kind of an important point. It's a nuance, if you will. Technically speaking, it's probably more of a descriptive term, not the name of the month. But the Bible does say the month of Abib, so it also refers to that as that month, as that name. But it is also a description. And the description is literally the month of young years of grain. Goes on to say this may indicate the Israelitish way of determining the new year, Exodus 12, verse 2. The year beginning with the new moon nearest or next preceding this stage of the growth of the barley. We go with the new moon or with the barley prior to the new moon because that's the chronological order we find within the book of Exodus. So here we find a few definitions for the term abib. And within all of these definitions, we find one consistent item, and that is grain young years of grain and specifically we know based on the timing of the Passover that the grain would be barley nobody argues with that everybody understands that the grain during this time is barley it's not wheat it's not oats It's barley so that's the reason we use barley to determine the beginning of the year now some may ask or what about the equinox or notice the, these definitions don't mention the equinox. There's nothing within these definitions that would even suggest the equinox. What we find here, again, is young years of grain. You know, in fact, in my studies, I've looked at this. I've never been able to find a mention to the vernal equinox within Scripture. I don't think it exists. Now, some may say, what about tekupfa? It occurs uh, four or five times in the Hebrew uh, Scriptures, If you look at the word, and I've studied this at length, if you look at the word, it refers simply to a cycle, and always, interestingly enough, to the end of a cycle, not to the beginning. So not a real good fit for the vernal equinox. Maybe the autumnal equinox, but even then, there's real no good connection with the autumnal equinox. Certainly not the vernal equinox. It refers mainly to the end of the agricultural year, to the end of the solar year, and also, surprisingly, to the end of the uh, pregnancy. There's one example of that where she was at the end of her pregnancy and it was a tekutva. So there's many ways it's rendered, but it generally refers to the end of a cycle, not to uh, the equinoxes, some believe. Now we also base our use of the uh, barley on Exodus 9 verse 31. I'm not going to read it, but there we find it says that the barley was in the ear. In the Hebrew, the word ear is abib. So we find just prior to the new moon crescent, which we find in Exodus 12, verse 2. Exodus 9, verse 31 states that the barley was in Abib. So again, we find evidence in the Hebrew that the barley was in that stage right before the new moon crescent. So that's why we use the barley. Well, let's now transition and talk about the uh, topic at hand. We know from the word that Yahweh's days of worship, these feast days are important to him very important to the one we worship. Not only are these times, days of worship and days of fellowship as we find, and you know, scripture encourages that we come together, by the way, as a congregation, but we also know that they are pivotal prophetic events within Yahweh's plan of salvation. They are prophetic events and they are so important when it comes to these truths. You know, it's amazing how many ministers in I'm going to worship are now in some ways recognizing the value of these days. Now, granted, they don't understand how or when to observe them, but, but they recognize that there's something special about them. You know, I've seen some major TV evangelists, they, they mention these days, they, they hold meetings during these times, during these seasons, because, again, they see that they're special. There's something special about these days. You know, for me, one of the most important truths we find is these days of worship. These days were ordained by Yahweh within his word, and again, they offer incredible insight into his truth, into his plan of salvation for mankind. You know, for those who ignore these days are missing these uh, deeper meanings, these insights, that we find within these truths you see when we follow yahweh's commandments we are not only obeying him but we are learning lessons and that's one reason why it's so important that we do them you know some people they like to read about them or like to think about them no as, as believers we must do them we must apply them if we will understand them you know knowing this why just for a moment for a few minutes i want to ask why do so many believers choose to ignore these days why why is it that so many believers just simply choose not to observe these times? So, number one, many misunderstand the Apostle Paul. Let's face it, Paul is a hard guy to understand at times. Even Peter, in his epistle, said that Paul was hard to understand. He was not an easy man to understand, and and Peter warned about twisting twisting Paul's writings to their own destruction. So, Paul is not an easy man to understand. Many have twisted Paul's writings unto their own perverted beliefs. Another reason for this avoidance is tradition. You know, for 2,000 years, the church has said that the Messiah did away with the commandments, that there's no need to obey these feast days, these days of worship. You know, as a person, tradition is a very powerful thing. It's a very powerful thing. And believe me when I say all of us have tradition, none of us are immune to tr- tradition, none of us are immune Personal bias. Now it's important to realize though that not all tradition is bad. Sometimes in these circles, you know, we'll say or tradition, and we'll automatically assume that tradition is bad, or tradition is not always bad. You know, tradition gives meaning and purpose to life. Fiddle on the roof talks about tradition. Tradition is important. But as believers, we need to realize that if there's traditions, that oppose the word of our Father in heaven, that we're to put those aside. And that would be things like Sunday worship and, and Xmas and, and Halloween and some of this theology that is based on tradition like the Trinity and other items that certainly is not grounded within the word. Well, let's now talk about the prophetic nature of Yahweh's feast days. Where in the word do we find that these days are prophetic? Where, do, where can we go to kind of pinpoint that there's something... Something important about these days from a prophetic standpoint, or, you know, the, the passage I go to is Colossians 2, Colossians two sixteen through 17, it says, let no man therefore judge in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon. And just for a moment, I want to pause here, recognize that the new moon is mentioned. The new moon is mentioned. The new moon is an important day. You know, we're trying here to get better at the observance of the new moon. So I just want to point that out. Or of the Sabbath days, it says, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body of Messiah. You notice that Paul says here that these uh, days, these holy days, are a shadow of things to come. Are a shadow of things to come. You know, this is another way of saying that these days are prophetic. Not only, again, are these days of worship, days of fellowship, days of convocation... But they also reveal our Father's plan of salvation for mankind. They reveal these deeper truths. You know, what's really sad is that many people miss this significance. They are blinded again by 2,000 years of tradition. 2,000 years of bias, if you will, in some ways. But, you know, it's time that we wake up, we all wake up, and realize the importance of these days because they are that important. They are essential and critical that we understand. You know, with that, I want to begin with our first Day of worship, if you will, and that is a Passover. We see an example of the Passover in Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23, verse 5 says this, and the 14th day of the first month at even is Yahweh's Passover. Now we find here that this day is observed when? It says, on the 14th day of the first month at even. Now, what is the meaning of the word even? What is the meaning of the word even? or evening comes from the word Arab in Hebrew, and it means dusk of sunda- uh, sundown. Now, very specifically, it actually comes from a phrase, Ben-Ha-Arborim, and it refers to between the two evenings, and it actually refers to uh, the time when the the sun begins to go down, dusk to complete darkness. So that is technically the um, meaning or when we observe the Passover. Now, remember that in biblical times, the day began at sunset, still does. This is why we observe the Sabbath Friday at sunset. You know, some people, they're new to the minister, and they'll say, well, when do you observe the Sabbath? They're assuming that we observe the Sabbath only on Saturday. But no, when we understand how the day works, we understand that we observe the day, the Sabbath beginning Friday night or Friday sunset. Or we find here that we're to keep the Passover during this time, again, beginning on the 14th day of Abib, which again is about a month from now. And we do this at sunset or at evening. Now, we also know the name of the first month is Abib. We've talked a lot about this. I'm not going to dwell much more on this, but it means young years of grain, as we've uh, seen. Now, what else do we know about the Passover? What else do we know about the Passover in the Old Testament? We know that on this night, the death angel went through the land of Egypt and killed those who had not applied the blood. You know, that's an important point for us to realize and remember that this time is also connected with blood and redemption, even in the Old Testament, do we see this redemption, this concept of redemption found? So, from this, you can see why the Passover is so important, even from an Old Testament standpoint. Without the Passover, the Israelites would have never been released from their Egyptian bondage. It was through the blood. It was through through these um, acts that Yahweh performed through Moses and Aaron. Now, what about the New Testament? What does the Passover symbolize in the New Testament? 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, the Apostle Paul sheds some light on this. He says, There are purge out therefore the old leaven that you may be a new love, even as you are unleavened. He closes here by saying, For even Messiah, Passover is sacrificed for us. Now, what's the main message Paul is conveying here with Passover? We're showing here the role that the Messiah fulfilled in the New Testament through this day, through this time. You see, through his death, he fulfilled the Passover. The Passover is all about Yahshua's death, Yahshua's redemption. How he died to save a people that were not worthy. In fact, he represents today the Passover lamb that we find in the Old Testament. In John 1 verse 29, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of Yahweh, which takes away the sins of the world. So here we find a connection between Yahshua, his redemption, and the act of removing the sins of this world, those who would accept and apply the blood of Yahshua the Messiah. You see, the main purpose for Yahshua's coming was to shed his blood for the sins of mankind. Sure, he he also came to give an example and set an example that we might live by and follow, but the main purpose, the reason for his coming was to shed his blood so that we might have hope of eternal life through the forgiveness of his sins, or through the forgiveness of our sins. You know, we also see in Romans that his sacrifice reconciles us to our Father in heaven. You see, prior to his blood, you know, Scripture says that we were adversaries to our Father in heaven. But through his blood, through his redemption, through his sacrifice, he reconciles us who were once adversaries to the one we worship. Now, the next day of worship is equally important. important. And that is a feast of unleavened bread. So again, I want to return back to Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23, by the way, provides a summary of all the feast days. You may want to remember that for the uh, end here. Leviticus 23, 6 through 8 says, But on the fifteenth day of the same month is a feast of unleavened bread unto Yahweh. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread, and the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. But you shall offer an offering made by fire unto Yahweh seven days. And the seventh day is a holy convocation. You shall do you no know, servile work therein. So, what do we learn here about the feast of unloving bread? Or We see here that it follows a Passover. Passover is on the 14th day of Abib. The feast is on the 15th day of Abib. And we see here that it's seven days in duration. We also find here that the first and seventh days are special to unique. Scripture says that these days are holy convocations, holy convocations. I want to explore this phrase for just a moment. What does it mean to have a holy convocation? Well, the word or the phrase holy convocation comes from the Hebrew words Kodesh Mikra, Kodesh Mikra. Again, something you may want to remember, Kodesh Mikra. And refers to a sacred or set-apart meeting. So a sacred set-apart meeting. Yahweh says that you're going to have a set-apart meeting. It also, by the way, refers to a rehearsal if we look at the Strongs, which is, which is uh, fascinating. Now, we also know that Israel went into the wilderness on the first day of this feast. Some people don't know that. They, they actually went into the wilderness on the first day of this feast. Scripture says that they left Ramses on the 15th day of the first month. So while they won their freedom on the night of the Passover, the Sefer at that point with the death of the firstborns had go. But it was still the 14th day of Abib. But they physically left Goshen. They physically left where they were with the Egyptians on the 15th day of the first month. Now we're also commanded during this time to abstain from leavening or yeast. Why is it? Why is that? Why do we need to abstain from leavening? during this time, where number one, the Israelites left Egypt in haste, it says, and were unable to leaven their does, so they were unleavened, and we're to follow in this practice. Now, another reason is what leavening represents or symbolizes. Now, this is not true in all cases. Some people, they have this, this um, thought that leavening always represents sin, or that's not true. Leavening doesn't always represent sin, but it often represents sin. And you know, as we see in the Word, in the New Testament, leavening is compared to malice, false beliefs, corruption, and wickedness. So many different forms of sin or iniquity. Understand that when Israel left Egypt, they were leaving the sins of Egypt behind. And that's another lesson of this feast. That during this week, they were to leave the sins of this world behind. This was symbolized by not allowing their bread to leaven. Now as we... Also know this feast has a connection to the agriculture, as do many of the others. Actually, the three are unleavened bread, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Those are the three agricultural feasts, if you will, that are the heartbeat of Yahweh's sacred year. You know, for Israel of all, this time commemorated the barley harvest we've talked quite a bit about barley today and that's why it's critical that we have the barley by the way if you have no barley you can't do the offering and if you can't do the offering where well, you can't have the feast you got to have the barley it's not complicated you got to have the barley we can read about this in leviticus 23 verse 10 through 11 it says speak unto the children of israel and say unto them when you come into the land which I give you, and you shall reap the harvest thereof. Then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of the harvest unto the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before Yahweh to be accepted for you on the morrow after the Sabbath. Now, the morrow after the Sabbath, again, there's, there's some debate with this, but the morrow after the Sabbath simply means the day after the Sabbath. So what is the day after the Sabbath? The day after the Sabbath is Sunday. That's all it's saying is Sunday. They're to wave this on Sunday. And the priest shall wave it, it says. So we see here that Israel was commanded to bring the first fruits of the barley harvest. Some even say the first of the first fruits. This was the very first of the first fruits that they would bring because they were not able, they were not able to harvest until this was done. And that's an important point to, to remember. This was again done during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And again, that's why it's so important that we make sure that there's ample, which, by the way, doesn't require much if you look at the measurements, it's about two quarts of barley is what the wave sheaf offered or required. It's not a whole lot of barley, but it did require sufficient Abib barley at minimum in the soft dough stage. You had to have that amount of barley by the wave sheaf. Now, again, it's important that Israel could not harvest the barley prior to the offering of the wave sheaf. As a side note, this is why the month of Abib is so important. This is why barley is so important to this month. If you begin the month too early, you will have no obi barley to offer. If you begin the month too late, you jeopardize your crop. You really do. So I'll just share this real quick. Years ago, I heard a man who has been pretty faithful. He's gone to Israel multiple times. He had a, a webinar conference, and he was talking about this, and he said, if you leave barley out once it's mature," it begins to deplete the nutrients and is susceptible to the environment. And he gave an example something like this. He says, imagine that you get a real hard rain. And then after that, you get a real hot day. What happens, and then after that, you get wind. Or what happens in that case is, is this uh, head soaks in this rain and then the heat will sh- uh, sh- uh, sh- shivel that, uh, that, that kernel and it will fall off, and that protects the head, that grain. And if you get wind, it will knock the grain off, and you will have no harvest. So to validate this, I called um, MFA and uh, asked there if they had any uh, one who raised barley. And the guy that answered the phone says, sure, I raised barley. And I said, I have a question, if, if you wouldn't mind. He says, yeah, absolutely. And so I explained that scenario. He says, yes, that's right. He says, barley and oats and wheat, it's all the same thing. And he says it's one of those crops, as soon as it's mature, you remove it. You, you harvest that crop. You don't wait, because if you wait, you're going to lose it. But for Israel of all, they were in a quandary, because if, if they had to offer this offering prior to the harvest. So they had to make sure that they had the first, the first fruits. Because if they had late barley, or they would have, would have lost much of their crop. So again, it's susceptible to the environment, and this is why it's important that we understand it's the first of the first fruits. It's not the late crop, as some believe or some believe you can do. It doesn't work agriculturally. Now, the wave sheaf is also important from a prophetic standpoint. There's a reason why I'm kind of dwelling on the wave sheaf. It's also important prophetically. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20, Paul speaks about this and shows a connection between it and Yahshua's resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23 says, But now is Messiah risen from the dead, and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as, at, as an animal dies, so as a Messiah shall all be made alive, but every man in his own order. Messiah the first fruits, afterward, they that are Messiahs at his coming. So we find here that the Messiah represents what? The Messiah represents the first fruits, the Messiah represents the wave sheath. This is why it's so critical. This is why it's so important. This is why it's so vital that we understand the wave sheath. You see, Yahshua was the first to be resurrected to eternal life. I mean, there were others to be resurrected, we know. We see within the word that some were resurrected, but they died again. Yahshua was the only one to be resurrected to eternal life, and that's an important point to realize. So, through his resurrection, the Messiah fulfilled the first fruits or the Omer offering. You know, we see a connection here between the Old Testament wave sheath then and the resurrection of Yahshua the Messiah. So will fulfill the wave sheath, how? Through his resurrection. And keep in mind that our resurrection is predicated upon his resurrection. If he was never resurrected, we today have no hope of the resurrection. Romans 6 talks about that. Romans 6 talks about how, how we will be resurrected in his likeness. or the likeness of his resurrection. Our resurrection is predicated upon his resurrection. You know, this concept of the Old Testament being dead could not be further from the truth. Something many don't realize is that Yahshua and the Apostles, they had no New Testament. They had no New Testament. It was only the Old. Now, sure, there were some epistles circulating early on. I think Paul's epistles were circulating to different assemblies. But the concept of a New Testament did not exist, not until 325, 300 years after the Messiah. And that's just kind of an important point to realize and, and again, to remember. Now, what else do we learn here from Paul, where he says again in verse 22, For an Adam all die, even so in Messiah shall all be made alive. You know, only through Yahshua the Messiah do we find everlasting life. And this feast of unleavened bread depicts and symbolizes this resurrection, symbolizes this hope, symbolizes the opportunity we have through the blood of our Savior. In fact, we find here that those Messiah will be resurrected, it says, at his coming. And that's another truth to kind of understand. That the first resurrection is connected to Yahshua's second coming. They, are, they should be viewed together. Yahshua is going to resurrect the first fruits of, of those who followed him at his coming. So we have the first resurrection along with the second coming of our Savior. And after this, we know that Yahshua will then establish, the millennium will establish his kingdom here on earth with the saints, with those who are found worthy. Understand that this is all foreshadowed, this is all depicted prophetically through the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Without this feast, we do not understand these truths, the the first fruits and the symbolism to the Messiah and the fact that as it represented the barley harvest, the first of the first fruits, that Yahshua represents the first of those who will be resurrected. It's such an important point. Such a crucial truth to realize. Now the last feast I want to cover today is the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. This also is important. You know, it's really hard to say any of them are more important than the others. They're all crucial because they all build upon his plan. Again, Passover, what does Passover symbolize? It represents his death, Joshua's death, Right? Which is our redemption, our atonement, our sacrifice, and then the feast of unleavened bread it represents His resurrection. Where if He was never resurrected, we would have no Savior. So if He died but never resurrected, His death would have really not given a whole lot. But we have to have both; they build, and this third one does the same; it builds. So what do we know about this next feast? Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, also known as Shavuot. I'll explain that later. We see an example of this in Leviticus 23 again. A summary of all of his days of worship. Leviticus 23:15 through 16, and then part of 21. It says, "And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering." So again, we're still talking about the wave offering. This is how we determine Pentecost. Seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Sabbaths, Shabbat, seven Shabbats shall be complete. Seven Sabbaths shall be complete. Even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall you number fifty days. So you got seven weeks, right? Seven times seven for those who know multiplication. That is what? Forty-nine. And then we add a f- another day to it, and what do we have? We have fifty. Fifty. Fifty, by the way, is the meaning of Pentecost. It's Greek. It means fifty. That's where you get Pentecost, Feast of Weeks, and then we have Shavuot, which in Hebrew literally means weeks. So all the names with this day is connected with how this day is determined and counted. Feast of Weeks is obviously in reference to the weeks it's counted. Shavuot is weeks again, the reference to how it's counted, and Pentecost is fifty, referring the total duration of this time. So again, to finish this up, here it says, "Even unto the morrow after the seventh sabbath, shall you number fifty days, and you shall offer a meat offering, a grain offering unto Yahweh." And by the way, what's the only, <laughs> the only uh, non-animal sacrifice? It's the meat offering. Doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? But that's true. That's true. It's also called the grain offering, which makes a little bit more sense. Or the cereal offerings, I've seen that as well. The meat offering—it's not meat; it's grain new meat offering unto Yahweh, and you shall proclaim of the self same day that it may be a holy convocation unto you. So, we see here, to determine this feast, Israel had to count seven, it says complete weeks, and again, the Hebrew there for weeks is Shabbat, so it refers to the Sabbath, seven complete Sabbaths. And then they were to add one more day, and that one more day would equate to 50 days, and that was the count of Pentecost, and that would always then land on a Sunday, 50 days from the time of the wave sheath. So this count began when the wave sheaf was offered during the feast from 11 bread, which was again on the morrow after the Sabbath, or when? Sunday. The morrow after the Sabbath or Sunday. You know, this is also again where the Jews receive Shavuot, means weeks. One more time. Now we also see here that this day, uh, like the uh, feast before it, is a holy convocation. A holy convocation. What's the Hebrew for holy convocation? Kodesh Mikra. You're going to do very, very well in this quiz at the end. Kodesh Mikra, and it means again a sacred, a sacred coming together, sacred meeting, set apart gathering. And we're to do this during the feast days. In fact, we're to do this really during the Sabbath. There's a command in Scripture to come together. Now, I know not everybody can. I understand that. But if we can and we don't, we're breaking the command, I believe. We should be coming together during his days of worship, which includes the Sabbath. Now, what else do we find here? Whereas with the Feast and Leavened Bread, we know that this feast, too, is connected with the agriculture Again, you know, Scripture speaks of a three pilgrimage feasts, unleavened bread, Pentecost, and tabernacles. And there's a reason why it's connected to the agriculture. So this day symbolizes the, the um, weed harvest. It commemorates the weed harvest. First you have barley, then you have wheat. So this day commemorates the weed harvest. We know that on this day the Israelites prepared two loaves of, made of wheat and that were also leavened. Two loaves, two very large loaves of bread. Again, the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and also the leavening. Which again, that alone tells us that leavening is not always a bad thing, because leavening was used within this offering. Now, what does the loaves represent? There's a lot of speculation on this. I'm not going to say anybody really knows. I think there's a lot of debate. I kind of wonder if it represents the uh, two two items that are connected with this day, the giving of the law and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, I could be wrong. Maybe it represents something different. Now, how do we know that the law was given on this day? How do we know that the law was given on that? Or we don't know exactly, but there's a strong indication. We know from a rabbinic belief that the law was given on this day. We also know based on Exodus 19, verse 1, it shows that Israel was in the wilderness of Sinai, it says, in the third month. Or when is the third month? The third month is the month of the Feast of Weeks. The third month is a month of Shavuot. The third month is a month of Pentecost. So we know based on the timing that the Israelites were in Sinai during this time. So it's speculation, but to me it makes sense. You know, all great great events within scripture generally occurred on the feast days. And what is greater in some ways than the giving of the law? So I think it probably occurred on this day. Now, we know that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit occurred on this day happened. We see this in uh, Acts 2, verse 1. Acts 2, 1 through 4 says this. It says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. So again, we see this concept of what? Kodesh Mikra. We see this concept of coming together, a holy convocation. You know, I don't believe it's coincidence. Scripture emphasizes this point, that it was Pentecost and they were together in one accord. Goes on to say, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven, or divided tongues, like as a fire. So it wasn't fire, but it says it's like fire. And it set upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, with the Ruach Kodesh, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. So notice here that the apostles were observing the day of Pentecost. They were observing Shavuot in the New Testament. Now why were the apostles doing this after all these days are no longer necessary, right? Of course not. We know that that's not true. These days are still of value. They're still relevant. They're still necessary. What happened on this day? We find here that Yahweh poured out his Holy Spirit. Yahweh poured out his Ruach Kodesh on this day, on this time. What happened when this occurred? What do we see in scripture? We see here that those that were there, tongues of fire or like tongues of fire came down. The manifestation of Yahweh's spirit set upon those who were gathered. And it says here that they were able to speak in tongues. As a side note, I also believe that maybe they could hear one another and different languages. We we see that indication of that. Now, what is the meaning of tongues? What is the meaning of tongues? So this word comes from the Greek glossa. Glossa means a known language, according to Strong's. Understand that this word doesn't refer to what we often see within the charismatic movement. This term, tongues, refers to a known language, a known language. So again, we see here that on this day, or Father in heaven, poured out his Ruach poured out his Holy Spirit. So let's back up for just a moment. Think about this concept, this timeline of prophetic events. We find Yahshua's death. Then we find his resurrection. So we find that we're now cleansed of our sins. We find that we have the hope of a future resurrection through him. And then we find the giving of the Holy Spirit. The pouring out of his Holy Spirit. I can't see this happening in any other way. I can't see this happening in any other way. It shows why these days are so pivotal. And the truth we miss when we ignore these times. Again, contrary to popular belief, these days are not dead and gone. They were observed by the Messiah. They were observed by the apostles. I'm not going to go through the examples, but they were. There's many, many examples showing that these days were observed. And they will be observed in the kingdom. We know that. We see evidence of that, you know, within scripture, that they will be observed again. Again, through the Passover, we find our Savior, uh, is his death and our redemption. Through the Feast of love and Bread, we find the offering of the wave sheaf symbolizing his resurrection. And finally, we find the outpouring of of his Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh. And by the way, the scripture also calls us a comforter, which was promised to come after the death of Yahshua the Messiah. Yahshua said that he had to go away before the comforter could come. Yahshua went away, and the comforter came through the Holy Spirit, through the Ruach HaKodesh. You know, all of these Times are monumental. They're, they are major, major events within our Father's Word. And this is especially true for the Passover, which is again coming up in about four weeks. You know, before we partake of the Passover emblem, uh, emblems symbolizing Ashua's body and his blood, we need to make sure that our hearts are right with the one we worship. You know, Paul says this in first Corinthians 11, verse 29. He says this He says, For he that eats and drinks unworthily, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the master's body. Now think about that for just a moment. Think about the seriousness of that statement. You know, as we approach the Passover in this feast, I would encourage all those here, all those listening, all those contemplating this time to prepare their hearts and minds for this prophetic event. It is not something we should take lightly. It is something we should really review and understand the gravity of what we're doing. Now, before I close, I promised you all a quiz. So I will deliver upon this promise. So before we get into the quiz, I'm going to give you one more opportunity to go through the instructions here. The easiest thing, by the way, is to download the app. So those who have downloaded the app, just simply type YRM Survey 633 And by the way, anybody can do this. You can be in South Africa right now and do this. You can be in Ireland, you can do this. You can be in Jamaica, you can do this. So, those online, I would encourage your involvement as well. So, if you've downloaded the app, it's probably too late now, but if you've downloaded the app, is YRM Survey 633, and, and that'll get you on. It's the easiest way of doing this. Um, you can also go to the website, pollevy.com/slash, YRM Survey 633, and um, you can connect that way. Now, the last way, and all of these things will work, is you can text, and you text YRM Survey 633. So you see the, the, uh, the uh, uniformity there, YRM Survey 633. That's true for no matter how you do this. But you text that to 22333. 22333. You text that. So you do 22333 as a number, right? And then you, and the text, like you're going to send a message, you do YRM Survey six Three, three. So wire room survey 633. Three. Okay, so if you don't have it by now, I do apologize, but we will uh, continue on. So we're going to switch it over. Okay, so we're going to see how well everybody listened. I kept these pretty simple, I think, I believe. You know, I've said that before in the past, and, and um, others have said, no, that was not real simple. But I think this one will be pretty simple. I, I think everybody's going to get 100% with each one of these. That's what I'm counting on anyway. So let's see if we can do it. It's been a while. Oh, we got it. You know, we have to. Uh, re- so don't do it until I say go. So why don't, why, don't we, why don't we clear the responses? I'm glad to see the involvement. Uh, actually, we were supposed to do this for Jose. That's fine. So we're going to do this now. So how many years? So how many years have you observed the Sabbath? Well, this is, a, this is just a give me. This, this is even graded. There's no one right answer here. So how many years? I thought it would be kind of fun to see how many years everyone's been a Sabbath keeper. I know we have more than 51 years, I think, in the room. Maybe they can't figure it out. Who knows? I have one. She, she's already come, come forward. So we do have one 51 years. She just can't figure out the app. So that's fine. So let's see here, 46%, 1 to 10 years. That's that's actually higher than what I thought. I thought we'd have more higher numbers. So 11 to 20 years is uh, 26%, 21 to 30 years. Boy, I tell you, you guys are a small category there. 4%, 31 to 40 years, 8%, 41 to 50 years, 10%. I'd be in the 41 to 50 years, by the way. I've been doing this as a kid, 41 to 50 years. So um, I'm part of that 11% there. Okay, oh, I'm not sure what F stands for. I've never seen that. But we do have somebody here that's had 50 years, over 50, 51 years. Okay, this is kind of fun. Let's move on. Ready. Okay, Abib refers to what? And I think you have to show the answers on this, Lucas okay the equinox young ears of barley specific constellations the changing of the seasons so either I have to talk to somebody <laughs> or they just push the wrong button okay okay very good So the 94%, you have my blessing on that one there. (laughs) Yeah, you never know. Okay. Okay, which statement is not true? Yahweh's feast days are prophetic. You can show responses. The feast days were observed by Yahshua and the apostles. The feast days will not be observed in the millennium. The feast days are times of worship and fellowship. You see how easy I'm leaving these? All you have to do is stay awake. If you stay awake, you're going to know these answers. So that's all I'm asking. Just stay awake and listen. So 91% or 89%. So most of you did pretty good. 89% did really, really well. So the feast days will not be observed in the millennium. That is wrong. We know that the feast days will be observed in the millennium. We see examples, uh, for instance, in Ezekiel 45, 46. We see examples in Zechariah 14. So we know that these days will be observed during this time. We're 93%. We're getting better here. Someone, they're they're waiting. Okay. And why don't you just go ahead and always show the answers immediately uh, there. Okay. So which passages confirm that the feast days are prophetic? Leviticus 23, Matthew 5, Romans 6, or Colossians 2? Now, I'm kind of disappointed on this one here. I'm just going to tell you right now. So let's see here. Or... Let's see. What what do we have? I'm going to give it just a few more moments. So Leviticus 23, Matthew 5, Romans 6, and Colossians 2. Just real quickly, raise your hand if you're able to participate in this. I just want to kind of see. Well, that is really good. I'm impressed. And we also hopefully have people online doing it. So that's good. And people, they're still going here. Okay. So I'm going to give this just about 10 more seconds. So 10 more seconds. 10, 9, 8, I'm still moving. Okay, so 45% of you are right. So it is a majority, but it's not the majority I was hoping for. I was hoping for 100%. Okay, show the answers if you would. Which passages provides descriptions for all the feast days? Exodus 12, Leviticus 23, Numbers 28, Deuteronomy 5. Okay, I'll give just a few more moments. We'll see which one it is here. You never knew, never know, 82% could be wrong. Could be. Okay, so Exodus 12, Leviticus 23, Numbers 28, and Deuteronomy 5. Okay, so we're just going to kind of stop here. The answer is Leviticus 23. I said that multiple times, by the way. And there's no excuses for that one. I said that multiple times. I made sure to say it multiple times throughout my message. This is a summary of all the Pass all the feast days. Exodus 12 contains what? It contains a description of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Leviticus 23 does contain a summary of all the feast days. Numbers 28 contains a partial summary. And Deuteronomy 5 is what? The Ten Commandments. Okay, so very good. The Passover prophetically represents Yahshua's death, Yahshua's resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Yahshua's second coming. Okay? Now I'm going to give this just a few more moments. Now if you're still doing this and you're looking at this 97%, they could be wrong. So you want to think about this. I'll give it just a few more moments. Passover prophetically represents what? Yahshua's death, resurrection, the Holy Spirit or Yahshua's second coming. Okay, so ninety-three of you are right, so that is very good. The Passover does represent Yahshua's death. So uh, we see here some need to uh, re-review the message. Okay, when is a Passover to be observed? Fourteenth of Abi, but even fourteenth of Abi, but three p.m. 14th of Abib at noon, 15th of Abib but even. So, when is the Passover to be observed? I'll give you just a few more moments here. When is the Passover to be observed? Okay, I think we all understand this very good, by the way. 93%. That's a really good number. 93%. Okay, that is correct. Okay, let's uh, continue on here. We have a few more. Which passage speaks about the Passover? Matthew five seventeen, John 3, 3, Acts 2, 1, or 1 Corinthians 5, 7. So which one speaks about the Passover? Which passage? John 3, 3, Acts 2, 1, Matthew five seventeen, or 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7. So I'm going to give just a few more moments here because I'm not liking what I'm saying. But I'll give a few more moments. A few more moments. For those who may not have responded, by the way, I think I disable changing answers. Some people grumble when I do that, but I fear if you don't know it the first time, you should not be able to retract your answer. So I always disable that. Did I do that this time? I'm sure there have been people to try to change her. See, the elder's wife, she, she's honest. She made a mistake. She was probably one of the ones that said the equinox. Okay. So the correct answer is 42, that, that 1%, that 40, it was 41, 42% are right. So um, yeah, that, I'm not sure what to say about that. I'm just going to keep on going. That's like an F, by the way. Anything under 50% is an F. So we, we need to, okay, show the answers. Who stated, behold, the Lamb of Yahweh, which takes away the sins of the world? Jeremiah the prophet, John the Baptist, Matthew, or the apostle Paul? So Jeremiah the prophet, John the Baptist, Matthew, or the Apostle Paul. So I'll give this just a few more moments. I'm really glad, by the way, to see the level of participation with this. And hopefully, by the way, that we had long delays online. That's why we kind of stopped doing this. But they've reassured me there's no delays online. So can some, maybe you can't confirm that, but maybe someone online can confirm that later. Supposedly, the delays down to just a few seconds. So we are, we're doing this in-house now, broadcasting, so we can uh, remove much of that delay. Okay, 82% says John the Baptist, 82-83% would be right. So that is correct, John the Baptist. Okay, the phrase holy convocations comes from the Hebrew, Kodesh Mikrah Yom Arab shaviot or Boker Tov. Which one? Kodesh Mikrah Yom Arab Shaviot or Bokertov. We'll just give just a few more moments here. Kodesh Mikra, Yom Arab. Shaviot or Bokertov. Which one? All right. I think we're gonna we're gonna call it good here. 89% was right. Real real quickly, Yom Arab, what does it mean? No, no, Yom Arab. Y'all means what? Day. Arab means what? Eve, Dark day. Evening. Day, evening. Makes no sense. I just put two <laughs> words together. Shaviot, what does it mean? No. Pentecost means what? Week. Pentecost means 50. Shaviot means weeks. You were close, though. But that's not an A. Okay. In Boker Tov, what does Boker mean? Good morning. Good morning. You good Israel, you hear that a lot. Boker Tov. Good morning. Okay, let's keep going here. I have no idea where we're at or how many we have left. I think we just have a few left. The Feast of Malevon Bread is connected with which harvest? The wheat harvest, the grape harvest, the fig harvest, or the barley harvest? So which one? The Feast of Malevon Bread is connected with which harvest? So we're just going to give us a few more uh, moments here. I... Oh... You know, I was really hoping I was going to get 100% on this one. (laughs) This was the one I was depending upon. So the fig harvest, I think this is during an unleavened, or a tabernacles, I believe. I think it's a fall crop. Weed harvest is, or I won't, the barley harvest is right. 95% got that one right. So that's a good job. Okay, the Feast of unleavened Bread prophetically represents... Yahshua's sacrifice, his resurrection, second coming, or his reign in the millennium. Which one? Feast of the Bread prophetically represents Yahshua's sacrifice, his resurrection, his second coming, or his reign during the millennium. Which one? Okay, give it just a few more seconds here. You know, if I say anything at all, give any indication, then everyone who hasn't voted, they're going to just jump on that indication. indicate, I'm not going to give any hints. Okay, 68%, 70%, whatever, are right. So it represents his resurrection, represents his resurrection. Okay, moving on. The barley harvest could not begin until the wave sheaf was offered, true or false? The barley harvest could not begin until the wave sheaf was offered, true or false? Now, I kind of emphasize this point again during the message. Yeah, it should be 100%. Just as a side note, we can actually see references uh, with this from the uh, Talmud and uh, Josephus. They both refer to this, and they both acknowledge and, and confirm that for the Israelites of old, that they did not begin the harvest until the wave sheaf was offered. I some some will dispute this, but when we see this in Deuteronomy 16, we also see it through uh, Jewish antiquity, through the uh, Talmud, and again, also Josephus. They both confirm this. Okay, I think we're good at 75%. It is six is true. Okay, let's go. Okay, Pentecost prophetically represents the giving of the Torah, Yahshua's second coming, the outpouring of the Spirit, the final judgment of mankind so what does it represent so let, let, let's not be let's not be you uh, know giving any uh, possible answers here we want to don't want to confuse people and don't want to make it too easy on them either so which one so Pentecost prophetically represents or i think we we were pretty good on this one 87 88% it does represent the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the Rock, Kodesh. Okay. And do we have another one? We do. Which harvest was connected to Pentecost? Which harvest was connected to Pentecost? The wheat, barley, pomegranate, or the grape? Which one? You know, believe it or not, there's a lot of pomegranates in the land of Israel. When you go, they, they have these uh, stands, these pomegranate stands. They are so yummy, as Michael Vanek would say, Brother Michael. They will squeeze a pomegranate, and they're, just, they're all over the place. So they raise a lot of pomegranates within, a, within the land of Israel. I did not know that until going over there. So it does represent the weed harvest, so 73%. I was kind of expecting something closer to 100%, but we're good with that, 75%. That's a C, by the way. That's a C. It's a middle C, but it's a C. Okay, do we have another one? Okay, we do. Which passage does Paul connect Yahshua's resurrection to the first fruits of the wave sheaf offering? So i got Romans 6, Galatians 4, Ephesians 2, or 1 Corinthians 15. Which one is it? Which one of these passages speaks about Yahshua's resurrection being connected or compared to the first fruits of the wave sheath offering? I'm going to give you just a few more moments. Let's give you 10 seconds. We're going to wrap this one up in 10 seconds. So how are we doing here? So nobody said Ephesians 2. Or well, for those who did not put Ephesians 2, you would be right. Oh, there it goes. I don't know who did that, but some people just do things out of spite, I think, sometimes. (laughs) Ephesians 2. Okay, so we got, so let's show the answer here. I think we've done a, so the answer is 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is, I call it the resurrection chapter. If you want to know something about the resurrection, especially the first resurrection, you refer to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul explains this in great depth. Okay, let's move on. I guess we're done. So hopefully that was a blessing and something you enjoyed. You did okay. I would say a B to an A, somewhere in there. And um, just certainly wish uh, Yahweh's blessings upon you, and thank you, and and, uh, may you have a, a blessed week. Hallelujah.